0: Beginning at verse 27. Let's begin our time with prayer. Dear Lord, Father, we thank you for this time to come and listen to your word. We do pray, Lord, that we would hear your voice, that we would um, hear it as the loudest voice in our life, the authoritative voice. We know, Lord, how easily we wander. We thank you for these moments to listen uh, to your truth. And we do pray, Lord, that we would lay up in our hearts the things that we hear and practice them in our lives and meditate on them. We thank you, O Lord, that in Jesus we find a light in this world of chaos. In Jesus' name we pray. Okay, so Acts chapter 21, beginning of verse 27. Now, just as context here, last week we talked about how uh, Paul was willing to go through this process of purification um, in order to assure the Jewish Christians there that he still practiced the Jewish ceremonial law. And so that's what it's referring to when we start our text, when it says these seven days were almost complete. Those are the days of purification that he had been participating in, so... Beginning of verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then, who recently stirred up a revolt? And led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way, and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" And I answered, "Who are you, Lord?" And he said to me, "I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light. But did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles." Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. To to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. And the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. That'll be the end of our text for today. So we have in this text a scene of utter chaos, right? Surrounding, on either sides, a few moments of hushed, Silence, while Paul describes his personal collision with the light of the world. He was once part of the chaos, you know, when he was Saul. But now he is called to speak into the chaos. Not his own message, of course. He shares the light, the light that he has seen. And, you know, I'm reminded of when... Uh, my oldest child was first born, and Jana would describe how she would long for the mornings after those long nights of waiting with him and feeding him and caring for him. And when she finally opened the curtains to let the morning light in, she would strain towards the light because she was expecting it. She was waiting for it. She was longing for it because it was a long, dark night. But our son, who wasn't Expecting the light, whose eyes were used to the dark, would squirm away from the light and squint his eyes. And I want you to know this morning, Christian, in the midst of chaos, disaster, failure, bitter misunderstanding, don't get used to the dark. Strain your eyes to see the light. The light in this text, as I said, is surrounded by chaos. And so we'll look at that in my first point chaos. That's my first point chaos. The chaos begins when some Jews from Asia, probably they were from the city that uh, Paul had spent a couple years in Ephesus, they recognize him in the temple there. And they stir up the crowd with a bunch of accusations and and grab him. And Jed, I'm going to ask now that you bring up my picture of the temple. It may help you guys just to visualize this scene a bit. Uh, These these Jews claim that Paul is speaking against the Jewish people, the law, and the temple. To everyone everywhere, of course. But probably the thing that gets them uh, most riled up is this false accusation that he brought a Gentile, or, or Greeks they say, into the temple. Um, you can see in our our diagram here, this is the temple uh, courts here, and you've got a little low wall marked by a six called the soreg, and that was as far as you could go if you were a Gentile. You were not allowed past that wall. In fact, there were signs at every entrance that uh, said, if you go through here, you're going to die. We're going to kill you. So, and archaeologists have discovered some of these signs. Um, and so that was as far as a Gentile was allowed to go. So after starting this riot, these, these Jews drag Paul out of the inner court of the temple. And so probably he was either in one of these buildings... Uh, we know that one of those was involved in purification rites, so he was being purified. Or perhaps one of these where we know one of them was involved with the Nazarene rites that you may remember from the last passage. So he was somewhere in these inner courts, and they dragged him out out into this outer area. Uh, and then the gates close, which is very ominous. It, it means they want to shed some blood. That's what that means. And they don't want to defile the temple with his blood. So when those those gates close, that is not a good sign. They start to beat Paul out in some of these outer courts somewhere. And, I mean, you can imagine the ugly scene, the shoving, the hitting. He falls down, and they start to kick and stomp, trying to kill him. There's crowds of people coming in from the city. We're described maybe people coming out from these colonnades where people would be joining this confusion. Now, apparently, though, this sort of chaotic event, this wasn't like a strange— this was something the Romans knew occasionally happened around the temple because they built this fortress right here, marked with the twelve, called the Antonia Fortress. And it had direct access. It looked over the temple, and it had direct access to the temple courts. There were two stairways that led down into the temple courts. They're not shown here, but there were two stairways that led directly in. And so they have a watchtower right here, and they'd have some guards up there who would notice— if something started in the temple courts. Maybe as soon as people started shouting, certainly when the gates closed, and they thought, all right, the Jews have somebody they're trying to take out. And so they, this guard must tell the tribune, and he grabs some soldiers, and they run out directly down into the courts, uh, and the beating stops. The crowd is such a mess. The tribune can't even figure out what's going on, and so he starts to take... Uh, Paul back to the Antonia. He wants to examine him there back in the Antonia. But when they get to the steps, the text tells us they even they had to pick Paul up. I don't even know if people were just trying to like launch themselves at him or they were like grabbing at his legs through the legs of the soldiers. But you know, you get an idea for the ferociousness of this crowd. It's just a picture of pure human rage. Uh, the, the darkness of human hearts just overflowing in this big group of people, uh, and, and they cry out, away with him, just like they had cried out years before with Jesus. Jed, you can take away my temple picture now. But There's this unbelievable section then that we get to in the middle of our text where the, the crowd quiets and they listen. And, and you can imagine for the Romans, right, who probably didn't know Aramaic, Paul is speaking for a while. They don't know what he's saying, but these people appear to be listening pretty carefully. And then he says something, and the crowd goes nuts again, right? Screaming, this guy should not be allowed to live. What inspires such hate? They, they throw off their cloaks. That's a prelude to stoning someone. They get rid of the cloaks so that they, their arms are free. You may remember that... Uh, Years before, when Stephen was stoned, Saul had been the one that held the cloaks of the guys who were stoning Stephen. They don't have stones, so they fling dust. Right? They fling dust. They're almost demon-possessed, aren't they? And yet, this kind of chaotic hatred, it's really not so unusual in the world, is it? Wendell Berry writes in his novel, *Jaber Crow* that while love is slow and accumulating, there are some emotions that humans communicate easily and fully. Anger and contempt and hatred leap from one heart to another like fire in dry grass. Which leaves us with the all-important question, how do we avoid the contagion? How do we keep our hearts from being gripped and owned by the hatred, the anger we see in this chaos? The world will tell you to try harder or to look within yourself. But Paul will tell you to call on the name of Jesus, verse 16. And why should you listen to Paul? Well, because he has a story like yours. So my second point, a story like yours. Paul stands at the top of these steps, the steps of the fortress. He gets this uh, tribune to let him speak to the people. It's an amazing thing. He looked out on the people. And what does he see, do you think? He sees himself. He sees himself back when he was Saul. He says in verse 3, I was zealous for God, as all of you are this day. Right? A statement of identification there. You see, this is where the Christian must begin the process of relating to our chaotic world. I was there. I know. I understand. This is where evangelism begins. Before we even open our mouths, look out. See yourself in the crowds. As soon as it becomes us and them, as soon as it becomes, you know, we can't believe that we could ever fall to those depths. As soon as we can't see that we would live in that same darkness, but for the grace of God. And indeed, we fall into that same darkness. As soon as we can't see that, we're in a bad spot. We're starting to look a lot more like these prejudiced Jews than we want to. After all, it is that simple truth that they are in the same needy place as the Gentiles. That drives them insane with rage. We are the chosen people. You don't put us in the same category as those dogs Paul understands. He's been there. He knows the rage, the bitterness, the anger, the zeal that is misplaced. He sees his younger self out there in the crowds, and so he opens his mouth and he shares his testimony. I was like you guys, only I was actually a lot better at it than you. I was trained by Gamaliel you know, the most brilliant rabbi of our day. I was trained in the strict manner of our fathers, a Pharisee. I persecuted these people. You could talk to the high priest. You could talk to the whole council of the elders. They'll remember me. And you know, Paul, he shares his testimony three times throughout the book of Acts, and it's Instructive that he shapes the details each time, he shapes the details to best reach whoever's in front of him. And so, again, it's all about relating to these people right here. Notice in verse 12, he describes Ananias as a devout man according to the law, well spoken by all the Jews who live there. Ananias sounds like the kind of guy the people in this crowd would like, he's a legit Jew. And and what is Paul doing when he receives this vision in verse 17? What's he doing? He was praying in the temple in this sacred Jewish space that these people love. Uh, even when Jesus says, "You need to leave Jerusalem because these people will not accept your testimony about me." Paul argues with him. "Lord, everybody knows how zealous Of a Jew, I was. I was the enforcer of the true religion. And and I think what Paul is implying is that it would be obvious that only a supernatural collision could turn such an absolutely clearly Jesus hater into a Jesus lover. Only, Only God could make that kind of a change. How could these Jews not believe that if they saw Paul? And heard his testimony, but Jesus says to him, they will not accept your testimony about me. Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And that really raises a big question. What is is Paul's point in sharing his testimony here? I mean, Jesus has already told him they're not going to accept it. What's he trying to do? I mean, perhaps he doesn't view this as an absolute. Maybe he is thinking, you know, there's surely there's some young Saul way out there in the back, holding the cloak somewhere, who will hear? We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. There's one. The crowd seems pretty much on the same page. I mean, the goal of this testimony—it's not like he's trying to uh, make him make it easier for him to survive, right? He's not trying to avoid suffering. He—he wouldn't have mentioned the Gentiles if that were the case. He knows enough not to do that. He wouldn't have come back to Jerusalem, if that were the case, right? I mean, you remember the last couple chapters. People keep telling him, "Paul, don't go back to Jerusalem. You're going to get hurt." He keeps saying, "No, I'm going back." He has these people hushed. They're listening to him. He's got an attentive crowd. He could have taken them this speech a totally different direction where they would have had him on their shoulders and cheering. That's not his goal. He does not keep his mouth shut. You remember last week we saw he did keep his mouth shut to promote the unity of the church. But here the truth of the gospel is at stake and he does not hold back. But what's his goal? Goal. if God has already told him, you're not going to convert these people, just like the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Stephen, sent to people who will not hear. So why speak? What's his goal? Well, his goal is simple, and it's our goal too. His goal is to lift Jesus up before the nations as the great light, regardless of the response. His goal is to say with his words and his actions again and again and again, glory be to Jesus Christ, the only Lord, the only Savior, the righteous one, who suffered and died for the atonement of the unrighteous like you. This is how we share our story with the world. First, seeing ourselves in the crowds. I was there. And then with the goal of glorifying the Lord, glorifying our Savior. The goal is not to convert people. The goal is not to keep ourselves safe. We're not in control of those things. Paul is still persuasive here, right? He he does try to avoid suffering. He tells the tribune that he's a Roman citizen so he doesn't get whipped he but what's his ultimate goal his goal is to glorify his savior but how does Saul become Paul what is it that Jesus does to to change this man uh, well Paul sees a great light uh, so this will be my third point a great light <clears throat> in his sermon on this text uh, Dr Liam Gallagher uh, one of my professors in seminary, he begins by looking back on the attack on the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001. There are all these fascinating stories that have come out of that one event. I don't know if any of you have been to the, the museum and the memorial there in New York City. It's one of my favorite um, museums i 've ever been, and part of the, 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 the thing that draws you in is all the stories of all these people who you know they made these their life was determined by these simple choices to go to the doctor 's appointment or not to stay home to take the right stairway to take the left stairway and and and, and these stories are interesting because these people 's lives intersected in one day with the story of several fanatics who drove these planes into these towers. Our lives are shaped by the places where they collide with the lives of other people. uh, Gallagher goes on to say, conversion in the truest sense is a collision of narratives. It is when another story, God's story, touches my story. And causes a collision that changes the direction of my life. The, the story here of the risen Christ collides with Paul's story on the Damascus Road and totally changes his life. He does a 180. I mean, this is a dramatic one. And we can't look at everything here in this, this conversion story. It's fascinating story, but there's a scholar who wrote a book called The Origin of Paul's Gospel, and he points out in this book how the seeds of all the things that Paul emphasizes in his teaching throughout his letters can actually be traced back to this collision, this event in Paul's life. Uh, As an example, you uh, you might remember how Paul has this emphasis on a believers are the body of Christ, right? He repeats this throughout his letters. And, and this can be traced back here to Jesus saying in verse 8, Paul, you are persecuting me when you persecute my people. But in this collision, we see two things. We see a warning, and we see grace. Verse 7, about noon, a great light from heaven shone around Saul, And, you know, what's brighter than the sun at noon in the Middle East? The glory of God Himself shining upon His people in the face of Jesus Christ. And this is not heat exhaustion. All the people there see this light. But only Paul is blinded. Why? It's a warning. It's actually a fulfillment of one of God's covenant curses upon his people. It reminds us of the darkness that fell upon hard-hearted Egypt, of course. But we also see in Deuteronomy 28-29, God warns his own people, look, if you reject me, if you turn away from me again and again and again, I will strike you with blindness and confusion of mind. And you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope. In darkness. Here's a warning for that great Jew, Saul, and for all those who reject Jesus. If you reject my Savior, I will leave you to wander about in the darkness. The the chaos of the angry crowds at the beginning, the end of this text that we know only too well in our own world, the blind groping in the darkness, that will be your heritage if you say no to the light of the world. And yet grace comes to Saul as well in that collision because he should have been burned up by that great light. He has touched the Lord's anointed one in persecuting his people, and yet the Lord gives him back his sight, and he turns his sight right side up, helps him to see the world truly, and then gives him work to do. He is to be a witness to this great light that he has seen. And brothers and sisters, this commission is for you as well. I I do not know how God is gifted Uh, and positioned you individually to share God's light. Paul's specific call was to shine it upon the Gentiles. I don't know where you are called to reflect the light of Christ and how, but if you are a witness to the light, then you have a call to share the light. Not your light. The light of Christ. The light that can actually change people. Uh, Think about it, right? Saul... Was unreachable. If you were a Christian back then, you couldn't get near to Saul. You couldn't go to your friends and be like, I'm going to go, I'm going to be the one that go evangelize to Saul. No, you get thrown in jail or worse. But Christ could get near to Saul. That's a word of hope for those who seem unreachable. And this collision changed Saul's life. Saul became But as he shined the light of Christ on this crowd of Jews gathered below him in the temple, they squirm away from the light. They squint their eyes because they are used to the darkness. Christian, if you see the light of Christ, do not get used to the darkness. Expect the light that comes in the morning. Strain your eyes towards it for the glimpse of the Savior each week as we come to his word. We are reaching towards, straining ourselves to see his goodness. As we lift up his name in song, glory in the strength of his light, the beauty of his sacrifice, the blinding truth of his law, the pure depths of his love, the the endless rays of his wisdom. Receive him and rest in him. And if your life has not collided with the Savior's, verse 16, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins and call upon the name of Jesus for help. Let's do that now as we pray. Dear Lord, we call upon the name of Jesus for help. We need his light in our lives for we live in a world that is chaotic. We see the darkness around us. We see it creep into our own hearts, Lord. And we ask today that the light of Christ would shine upon us and give us strength that we might not squirm away from His light, His truth, His word, but rejoice in His love, rejoice in worshiping Him, rejoice in resting in His sacrifice on our behalf, so that as we see Him now as our Savior, Lord, we might not be afraid at that final day when we see Him as our judge, but instead. recognized by him as his people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll sing a final hymn together, Like a River Glorious. This is number 699 if you want to turn to it in your hymnals.